thankful to uh, have many brothers and sisters filling in for those who couldn't be here. Jimmy and Paula, thank you for filling in and serving us so well. That's what the, the body is for, right? All of the members have a function and have a part. I'm thankful to preach in Chris's stead. Thank you for praying for him and for Dave. Uh, Pastor Paul is away visiting family this weekend, I believe. So uh, we're glad to be here. I'm thankful for the Lord's applause already through the service. So thank you for braving the weather and the rain. This morning, uh, we're going to go a little deeper into something that I talked about two weeks ago. So at the risk of self-promotion, could I encourage you maybe to go back if you weren't here two weeks ago and listen to our sermon on resolving conflict, biblical conflict resolution if you weren't here. And I'm really going to go back to point one and go a little deeper and begin with internal conflict. So before we talk about conflict with, between us and other people, we're going to look further at internal conflict and what I'm calling the war within. How do I win the war within? That's going to be our topic this morning. How do we win the war within? Hopefully you grabbed the outline out on the tables and our brothers have the main outline on the screen this morning for us. I'm going to begin with a story that some of you have heard if you've been in our parenting class. If you haven't been, now it's actually going out in public for the first time ever. This is the story about the hairbrush, the hole in the wall, and the bucket of water. Anybody heard me tell that story? Some of you are laughing, you have. This is a true story, I'm embarrassed to say. Every detail, as best I can remember, is True, I want you to listen to the details because I'm going to quiz you afterwards. Um, Nine years ago, so 2015-ish, around early summer, all I remember is getting up from the computer. I think I was doing paying bills or doing budgeting or financing or something, and whatever I was doing frustrated me, right? I don't know if we didn't have enough money at the end of the month or if there was a sudden bill or expense come up we weren't aware of, but I got up from the computer from doing those finances pretty angry and frustrated. And it only took me maybe three steps to walk from that end of the table to the other end of the table where I saw on the corner of the table one of my daughter's hairbrushes. Now, you know, I have three daughters and they all have hair and they have long hair. And I've gotten used to the fact that with my three daughters and my wife, there are lots of blonde and red long strands of hair on my clothes and everywhere in our house. I'm okay with that. But one thing I've always asked my daughters to do is, please do not leave your hairbrush that you rake across your head on the table where I eat my food. Is that asking too much? And so one of the daughters left their hairbrush on the table for the umpteenth Time. I don't know who it was, but Ava, we'll say it was Abby or Anna, right? Because they're not here. I was already angry. <clears throat> I became more angry. And I want to just warn you, or not warn you, but assure you that this has never happened before this moment, and it's never happened since, thankfully. But I grabbed the hairbrush. I looked down the hall. Now, my kids are at school. This was during the week. My kids are away. No one's in danger here. And I forcibly sidearmed that hairbrush down the hall into one of my daughter's rooms, or that was my goal anyway. I I was six feet away from a 30-inch door frame 
and I missed. And the hairbrush made its rounds, and the round end of the hairbrush stuck perfectly into the sheetrock on our wall. <clears throat> Come to my house today, I'll show you the divot. It's still there. Now I'm even more upset. So then <clears throat> I proceed to go to the garage to get the spackle and the paint because I've got to fix the hole that I've created in the wall. Still angry, I go to the garage closet. If you've ever been in my garage, you know that I have it organized, that I vacuum it, and I clean it regularly, including the closet. But when I open the closet this time, I know that the paint is at the bottom left corner, the bottom of the shelf in the closet. But before I can get to it, there are lawn chairs and folding tables and kids' toys and you name it, piled in that closet. So now I'm even more angry. Remember the computer and the finances and the hairbrush and the hole in the wall, and now I'm in the garage closet, and so I start violently yanking things out of the closet, just like this. I'm grabbing and, and throwing behind me. Remember, no one's around, no one's in danger. True story. Out of nowhere, while I'm flailing and flinging things, a bucket of water pours on my head. A bucket of water. I'm in the interior closet of our garage. Nobody's around. My wife's back in the bedroom doing something, and a bucket of water dumps on my head. Where did the bucket of water come from? Which one of those kids left a bucket full of water, plastic beach bucket full of water, in the closet, and why? Furious. I'm furious, and I'm wet, and I'm spackling a hole in the wall when Anita finally walks in. She's heard all this, and what in the world is going on? I said, you name it, it's happened to me. I got the wall fixed, but not sufficiently. You can still see the dimple in the wall. Now, here's my question. Which one of those events caused me to get angry? Was it the finances? Was it the hairbrush? Was it my own throwing the hairbrush in the hole in the wall? Which of those caused my anger? Where did the responsibility lie for my internal struggle and conflict? Which of those moments? I'm here to tell you, based on what we read in James, that none of those caused me to be angry. None of those. They provoked me for sure. They, and I hesitate to use the word trigger because we've expanded that meaning. I don't even know what it means anymore. They might have triggered my anger or frustration, but none of those were ultimately responsible for me getting angry. Who was responsible for me getting angry? Me. Me was responsible. So when we talk about conflict resolution, we're going back and looking at internal conflict. And James wants to point out this simple fact that before we try to deal with the conflict going on outside of us, he wants us to look at the conflict going on within us. So this morning, we're going to look at three ways to win the war within. Three ways to win the war within. The first is that we need to recognize the battlefield. To win the war within, we must recognize the battlefield. That's clearly given to us in James chapter 4, verse 1. I said this two weeks ago, but this has got to be the most clearest and promising Q&A section in our Bible. It's what every parent wants to know about their kids. It's what every spouse wants to know about their marriage. 
What is it that's causing the fights and the quarrels or the battles or the wars between us? James asked that question. And then he answers it at the end of the verse. Is it not this? Your passions are at war where? Within you. So James is saying that the problem that when we have conflict outside of us is conflict that begins where? Inside of us. This is a great passage to use when you're counseling others or encouraging others, whether it's marriage counseling or children or church relationships or work relationships. The battlefield we must recognize is within us. It's the flesh. The battlefield is the flesh. To win the war within, we must recognize the battlefield, and the battlefield is the flesh. This is the lifelong battle that we know between the flesh and the spirit. And if you're a believer, this is going to be a battle you're in for the rest of your life. This desire, or these desires within, are at war, are in battle against the spirit that dwells within us. There's usually some desire going on inside of us that's battling something else. Maybe this is a battle between what we know to do that would be wrong versus what we know to do to be wrong. Right, maybe it's that kind of a battle. Maybe it's a battle between a self-promoting response versus a God-glorifying response. That could be a battle going on within us. Maybe this is a battle between an opportunity to serve myself and make me look good or an opportunity to serve somebody else. It's that kind of battle going on. It could be a battle that would prove that I'm right for crying out loud or... Rather, I'd be willing to be wrong. Maybe it's that kind of battle going on. Maybe it's a battle between having my way and letting you have your way, even though I think my way is the right way. Maybe it's simply a battle between two preferences. I have a preference. You have a preference. We can't both be right. This is a battle that goes on where? Within us, in the flesh. I think I first studied this passage and was teaching this passage back in Arkansas uh, almost 15 years ago, and I remember talking to AJ, my son, about this passage at the time. He was maybe eight or nine years old, and just trying to, if I could explain it to an eight or nine-year-old, maybe I can teach and explain it to adults. So I was talking to him about this battle that goes on within. We know the right thing to do, but there's this internal struggle that doesn't want to do it, would rather do what we want to do. And we talked about that. He seemed like he got it. And a few days later, we were at the dinner table, and I told him, I said, son, this Saturday morning, we're going to go to Miss So-and-so's house with some other people. We're going to help her move into a new house, and I want you to come with me and help. Now, he, you know, can only carry a couch cushion, but he's old enough to serve, and I wanted him to be involved. And so he politely kind of nodded his head and grinned, more like a grimace, And he sat there for a little bit with that grin on his face. And I said, what's wrong? And he said, I can feel it. I said, you can feel what? He said, I can feel that battle going on inside. Because he knew what he would rather do on Saturday mornings, what I did every Saturday morning in the 70s growing up, watching cartoons. He would rather stay home and watch TV and watch cartoons rather than go and serve. And I get that. That's a battle that happens within. It starts... Within, it was an innocent desire, watching cartoons. Some of our desires are innocent. We'll talk about those in a minute. These are desires that are within us that are battling desires 
against it that Paul Tripp says in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, that we must hold with open hands. We must hold our desires with an open hand in submission to God's greater purposes. So when we're fighting or winning the battle within, we recognize the battlefield is the flesh. And then secondly, I want you to see that there's landmines we need to be aware of. The landmines are the desires. The landmines are those desires. Look back in your text, verse 2 or verse 1. Your passions are at war within you. That word passion is our word here, hadone, or we get our English word hedonist, and you know what that word means. It means to delight or enjoy or find pleasure in something. That's the idea of passions. Now, in the New Testament, that word hadone is only used five times, and it's always used negatively in the New Testament. Twice it's used right here in James, James chapter 4. Once it's used in Luke 8, you know, the parable of the sower, the third soil, the thorny soil. Remember, it's the seed that grows up, and then the thorns choke out the seed, the choke out the plant. Remember that illustration? Jesus says those thorns are the riches and the cares and the hadone, the pleasures, the passions of life that choke out real desires for the Word of God. Titus 3 mentions that we ourselves, talking about our old self before conversion, we were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Same word used negatively. And then Peter uses it in 2 Peter to talk about false teachers having these kind of evil pleasures. So these landmines are those desires. We're going to see in a minute that not every desire has to be sinful, but every time it's mentioned in the New Testament, it is. Look at this series of cause and effects now in verses 2 and 3. The battlefield is the flesh. The landmines are the desires. So let's try to figure out what are these landmines, what are these desires. Verse 2 says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. Really, you murder. Yes, you murder. You covet, another desire word, wanting something, and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You're willing to break the sixth commandment to get something that you don't have, or maybe it's just you're hating in your heart, as Jesus said in Matthew 5. If you hate someone in your heart, you're guilty of murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now you've broken the tenth commandment. That coveting goes down deep. You think, well, I've never killed anybody over a unmet desire, but have you hurt someone because of an unmet desire? Maybe you won't kill them or hurt them physically, but I'm going to wound you with my words. I'm going to kill you with my glare. I'm going to stare at you and let you know I'm not happy with you. I'm going to cut you with my witty sarcasm and harsh edge. I'm going to humiliate you by bringing up something from the past Or, I'll kill you with silence, pretending you don't even exist. I won't even acknowledge you. Or, I'll ruin you, your reputation, by spreading gossip or slander or discord. Why? Because you're not getting what you're wanting. You do not have, so you murder. You cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. And then he says in verse 3, 
you ask, or excuse me, verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask. So you don't have these desires because you're not asking. Asking for what? Well, maybe asking for the desires, but I think the idea here is that you're asking for God, you're asking God for the wisdom to know what should I desire, what should I want here. Earlier in James chapter 1, verse 5, James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives freely. Then later in chapter 1, he says, every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of heavenly light. So if there's something I'm wanting that I'm not getting, have you asked God for it? Have you asked him for wisdom for it? And then look just above our passage, just to keep in context here, we're in James 4. Look at the last few verses of James chapter 3, verses 13 and following. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. By the way, we've already talked about in James, or James has already talked about faith without works is dead. So he wants to see evidence of your faith by your works. Now he's picking up this idea of works again. By your good conduct, show your works in the meekness of wisdom. What kind of wisdom? If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not, not the wisdom that comes down from above, but this is earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom. What kind of wisdom is that? Jealousy, selfish ambition, wanting my way, wanting my preferences, wanting my rights. Verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom from above, that's the wisdom we want. That's the wisdom I need to ask for. The wisdom from above is first pure, then notice this, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Did you see that three times in two verses, peace? Did you see that? What are we talking about? Winning the war within? He tells us how to have peace peace. We ask God for this wisdom to be peaceable. We don't have, because we're not asking for wisdom in the moment to know what to say or how to react. The reason I didn't have self-control in that moment, whether I got up from the computer doing the finances or finding the hairbrush or making the hole in the wall, I didn't ask God in that moment for wisdom. Lord, help me here. Help me to know why this is happening and how I should Respond. Instead, I relied on my own worldly, selfish wisdom. And you see where that got me. And then when we do ask, we ask with wrong motives. That's verse 3. You ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now let's put that verse aside. We're going to come back to it in just a moment. So now, I'm in, a, I'm in a conflict. I'm in an internal conflict. There's something happening, something provoking me on the outside finances or disobedience or uh, inconvenience or something else outside of me. I'm not asking for wisdom, but what do I need to ask for? At this point, when you believe a conflict is arising in your heart, and listen, this is something that I don't practice every single time, but this is almost second nature to me now because I've taught this and walked through this passage so much. I'm not saying I respond godly every time, but I'm immediately asking myself this based on Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Here's what I'm asking when that conflict is arising. I'm getting angry. I'm getting disappointed. I'm getting sad. 
whatever it is, that conflict, here's what you ask. What am I wanting in this moment that I'm not getting? That's what you need to ask yourself. Okay, Aaron, you're, you're getting angry. What is it that you're wanting here that you're not getting? That's a simple question, right? What am I wanting that I'm not getting? Now, if it's a sinful desire, if it's something sinful, well, then that's a no-brainer. I need to repent of that sinful desire, don't I? I need to confess that. Lord, what I'm wanting is sinful. Forgive me for even wanting that. That's pretty easy to recognize. But what if it's a good desire? What if it's a, a good desire? I wanted enough money to pay my bills. Maybe was that what was, that's a good desire, right? I want to support my family. What if it's, I want my children to obey me and not leave their hairbrush on the table? That's a good desire, right? Children to obey your parents. That's in the Bible, right? Even though this, this could be a godly or a good desire or an amoral or neutral desire, that's when we have to be careful. What am I wanting that I'm not getting? As I said, that word hedonon or hedone, it's not always a negative word. Not all desires are evil desires. But listen, all good desires can become evil desires when we desire them too much. All good desires or neutral desires can become evil desires when we want them too much. How do I know that? Well, it's very subtle we have to be very careful and discerning to figure this out. Uh, I mentioned that book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands by Paul Tripp. He gives in that book a series of six progressive steps of desire that I've listed if you got the little outline. Six steps of progressive desire. When desire runs amok. I want to walk you through those for just a minute. I preached this sermon about nine, almost ten years ago, and I walk through these six progressive steps. And I use my own example of Anita and I wanting a nice night of peace and quiet, eating white cheese dip on a Wednesday night together. I used that example and I filled that into these blanks here. What was I wanting? I was wanting peace and quiet. I was wanting a little leisure time, a little rest time. And the sermon was so good that one of our members texted me later and said, I, I had a question about your sermon. And I said, oh, please ask me. And they said, what was the recipe of that cheese dip? <clears throat> she knows who she is and I won't embarrass her any further. <laughs> so I used the scenario. Anita and I on a Wednesday night, this still happens every Wednesday night. We go home after church. I'm usually here before eight with Bible study and working. I'll stay throughout the evening for Awana. Anita, this is her long day to work. So after church, we go home, we get some white queso, we sit down and eat cheese dip together every week. I'm ashamed to say for how long that's happened. But when our kids were younger, now it's not so much an issue, but when our kids were younger, when we would sit down to eat, wanting some peace and quiet, when they're supposed to be in bed, usually we would have at least one child come and want some of the cheese dip. So now I've got to share my cheese dip. I've got to share my leisure time and my nice treat. Or we'd have another kid that we'd hear pitter-patter down the hall and knock on the door, Mom, Mom, my legs hurt. Mom, I don't feel good. So now I'm upset because I can't enjoy my cheese dip and my peace and quiet because my child actually needs attention. My child wants me to actually be a parent. 
So this progressive step of a desire, I want you to fill in your own blank. What is it that you want that typically runs amok? Maybe it's a neutral desire. For me, it was peace and quiet. So desire for me was, I would like peace and quiet. I would like an evening of relaxing. Is that sinful? No, not, not necessarily. An amoral desire. Desire says, I would like peace and quiet. But then, if I'm holding that with an open hand, like Tripp says, and somebody gets in the way of that desire being met, then I start to do what? Start to close my hands on that desire. Then it becomes a demand. Demand is closing the fist over a desire. Demand says, I must have fill in the blank. I must have my peace and quiet. Then that demand turns to determination. Determination. I will get peace and quiet. I'm going to get it. I'll do whatever it takes. And then notice the subtle shift. Now it goes from desire to demand to determination to deserve. I deserve this. I've been working all day. I deserve a little time to sit down, peace and quiet, relaxation. I deserve peace and quiet, and you didn't give me peace and quiet. And so now I am disappointed, to say the least. I'm disappointed because I didn't get the peace and quiet. I'm hurt. I'm sad. I'm disappointed. I'm mad. I'm jealous because I had to share my peace and quiet with you. Maybe you resent someone because they got in the way of you getting your desire met. Maybe you're envious because others get their peace and quiet or get their fill in the blank. And then that's when we become defensive. Defensive, that's the final and sixth step of this progression of desire. Because you didn't give me my peace and quiet, because you got in the way of my peace and quiet, I'm going to war with you. Now we've got a conflict. What does that look like? Well, it may look like me getting onto the kids and getting angry with them. You're supposed to be in bed. Nothing wrong with correcting misbehavior or bad behavior, but there's no excuse for sinning against them in anger or yelling at them or being harsh with them. Why? Because I didn't get what I was wanting. This happens all the time. If it's my wife or my children or my friends or church members, and there's this internal conflict starting to happen, I have to ask, okay, what am I wanting that I'm not getting? Is that a sinful want, sinful desire? If it is, I need to confess. If it's not, I need to think through this. What are the good, neutral, amoral desires that you often have that turn to demands and disappointments and deservings and defense? Can you think of them? You have your own. Maybe for you, maybe it is peace and quiet. Maybe it's leisure time. Maybe it's control. I mean, a husband needs to be a leader of the home, but maybe that desire to lead turns into an obnoxious, out-of-control desire. Maybe a wife wants her husband to love her. That's a good and godly desire, but when she doesn't get it, she lashes out in defense, making life difficult. Maybe parents want their children to obey. Again, that's a biblical desire, but when they don't, we get angry or we're harsh unnecessarily. Maybe, maybe you want a, a house that doesn't have so many repairs. If I could only get that, that's, that's all I want. Or a car that doesn't break down. Or an appliance that I don't have to replace. You recognize the battlefield? It's the flesh. 
Are you identifying these landmines? What desires are you wanting that you're not getting? And when they go unmet, they start morphing and going wild, running amok. Why is there war among you? It's because of the passions within you. So the problem isn't outside of me. The problem is inside of me. In fact, let's just say the problem is me, right? The problem is me. That gets us to number two. To win the war within, we must redefine the enemies. We must redefine the enemies. Look at verse 3. James says, You ask and do not receive because you ask it wrongly to spend on your passions. Your passions. You desire and do not have, verse 2. You covet and cannot obtain. You ask and do not receive. Enemy number one is me. I've just realized I've met the enemy, and it is me. Not only am I the battlefield, but I'm the enemy. How about that for an encouraging message this morning? I love Dave Harvey's marriage book called When Sinners Say I Do. Many of you have read it. His second chapter in the book is entitled Waking Up with the Worst of Sinners. Now, how many of you are thinking about your spouse right now? Shame on you. That's not what he means. His point is, every morning I wake up with the worst of sinners, me. He goes on in that chapter to teach us that the biggest problem in my marriage is who? Me. When I counsel couples, no matter where they are in their marriage process, newlyweds or premarital or problems in the middle of marriage, I remind them at my own risk, I'll say to the husband, you know, the biggest problem in your marriage is you. As the wife's kind of nodding her head, I say, and the biggest problem in your marriage, ma'am, is you. And then they understand what I mean. Anytime you have conflict with another person, you naturally want to stop, start pointing fingers and blaming other people. But Jesus taught us to get the log out of our own eye first, Matthew 7. We don't have time to go into that. We mentioned that two weeks ago. But we could start by at least changing our thinking, changing our vocabulary, changing the way we talk. I don't need to be able to say, well, my wife made me mad. No, we've already seen she did not make me mad. Or if you only knew what my husband did, I wouldn't act like that. No, it's not your husband's fault the way you act. Well, if my pesky brother would just stay out of my room, or if my little sister would just keep her hands off of my toys, then I wouldn't get angry and yell at No, it's not sister's fault. It's not brother's fault. The blaming and responsibility needs to begin with us. It's not our home life. It's not our office environment. It's not those obnoxious co-workers. It's not the unreasonable teacher at school. It's not the other drivers in traffic. It's not that woman you gave me. It's me. It's inside of me. It's unmet desires. Now, let me stop and just insert right here. I am not for once suggesting that in conflict, other people don't sin against you. Not at all. We're often sinned against. That is one of the provocations. But their sin isn't to blame for your sin. I can never say, according to James, you make me so mad. That's not true. I get so mad, but I can't blame that person. Yes, maybe they sinned against me, but they are not the cause for 
my sin. They may be the object of my anger. Let's say it this way. They may be the object of my anger, but they are not the cause of my anger. You see the difference? They don't make you mad. You make you mad. So now you can look at your spouse this afternoon and say to her or to him, you don't make me mad. Or you can look at them and let's redeem this little phrase. You ever heard that phrase when, you know, back in school when you break up with your boyfriend or girlfriend, you say, it's not you, it's me. Well, let's redeem that. That's true. <laughs> say to your spouse, it's, it's not you, it's me. And mean it. Or instead of saying to them, well, you're not my problem, let's change the emphasis and say, you're not my problem. I'm my problem. Enemy number one is me. Enemy number two is adultery. Enemy number two is adultery. Not physical adultery, although that could be one of the symptoms. This is spiritual adultery. How are we adulterers? Look at verse four. So we're looking at the battlefield. We're looking at the landmines. Now we're looking at the enemy, redefining the enemy. Enemy number one is me. Enemy number two, we are adulterers. Verse four, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That's how we know he's not talking specifically about marital adultery. He's talking about spiritual adultery. If you're a friend with the world, you're an enemy of God. Let let me explain it this way. When we receive what we ask for, who do you thank? You thank the Lord, right? When you receive what you ask for, do you thank the Lord? Sure, I hope you do. Because he's the giver of every good and perfect gift. He's our provider. He's Jehovah Jireh, the good gift giver. But how about when you don't receive what you ask for? When you don't receive what you ask for, who do you thank? Who should you thank? The same one who gives you what you ask for sometimes. If God is the good gift giver, I'm here to say he's also the good gift withholder. He's the good gift withholder. He always answers our prayers, doesn't he? Yes, he'll say yes, or he'll say no, or he'll say not yet, or wait. But he's the good gift giver and the good gift withholder. Do you believe this? Do you believe that when you don't get what you ask, that it's God withholding it? Job did. Job said, the Lord gives, and the Lord what? Takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Paul did. Paul said, three times I pleaded with the Lord to remove this thorn in the flesh. And did God give him what he asked? No. In his weakness is when he was made strong. So when we do not get what we want, Instead of thanking God and trusting God, Lord, if I asked for that and you didn't give me that, then I'm going to assume that I didn't need that. Instead, what we do is we go after it ourselves, don't we? We go after it ourselves. Even if it's something God promised, we go after it ourselves. Does that sound familiar? Genesis 16, maybe, Abram and Sarah and then Hagar. God promised them children. They didn't get them in the time they wanted, and so they went out and tried to pursue it themselves. And we know how that turned out. And then he goes on, as these adulterers, as being friends with the world, he says, we still ask God for help. What does he mean? 
You ask, verse 3, and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. These are the ill motives that we put on hold just a moment ago. We're asking with ill motive. Have you ever prayed for someone else to change? Don't raise your hand. I hope, I hope you have. Legitimate change. Maybe they're in legitimate sin and they need to confess or repent. But did you find that your prayers for them to change was more so that your own life would be happy instead of they would be holy? Was it more so that you would be comfortable living with this person instead of them being conformed to the image of Christ? That's asking God for a good thing with an ill motive, you see? And we can be just as guilty of that. When we ask God for something and he doesn't give us what we want, even if it's a good thing, he doesn't change that person, he doesn't fix that child, he doesn't take care of that coworker, and we try to pursue it on ourselves, we know it's just for our happiness. It's saying that we're not content in what the Lord is giving and not giving to us. It's saying that we're trying to find contentment in something else or someone else. God, I'm not content with you. Would you fix this so that I will be content? Have we ever considered why God may not be answering our prayers? Have you ever considered why God may not be changing that person or meeting that need or fulfilling that desire? Have we ever considered for a moment that maybe we don't need it as bad as we think? Or maybe we need it in a way with other purposes? Have you ever considered maybe God isn't answering this because it's not for my best? God hasn't answered because it would not be for his ultimate glory. That God hasn't answered it because he would rather make you more like Jesus in the process. That he hasn't answered because he wants you to want him more than you want that unmet want. He wants you to be content in him, satisfied with him. We're adulterers. We're Adulterers, we're going after other desires. Those desires become our little G gods, our idols. Again, maybe it's a submissive wife is your idol. You're pursuing that instead of the Lord. Maybe it's a loving husband. Maybe it's obedient children. Maybe it's a nice, calm work environment. Maybe it's a house or a home or belongings that just work and life, an easy life. Good desires, but they become our gods. We're not content unless God gives them. So enemy number one is me. Enemy number two, we're adulterers. Number three, we're also friends with the world. Similar to this adultery, the world, which is really our enemy, has now become our friend. We've made friends with the world. You know what John says about this. Do not love the world or the things of the world. But now our enemy becomes our friend. And God, who is our friend through Christ, we make him out to be an enemy as we seek wisdom from the world. This is what we're talking about. Remember the verses we read at the end of chapter 3. Seeking from wisdom from above, pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, sincere. We reject that wisdom and we pursue worldly wisdom. We reject God's answers, God's way of handling things, and we pursue worldly wisdom and worldly answers. I'm afraid we've bought into the lie 
of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You're saying, that's not a lie. That's in the Declaration of Independence. It is. Nothing wrong with those. But the Bible doesn't promise those. The Bible doesn't promise me happiness. It promises me joy in Christ. It promises me life in Christ. It promises me liberty, freedom from my sins. They're not wrong, but they're not God's promises. So when life gets unhappy, we want to make decisions. We want to exercise worldly wisdom so that we will be happy, and I'll do whatever it takes to be happy. We will forsake responsibilities for the sake of freedom and liberty. We'll abandon marriages and relationships for the sake of, well, I just want to be happy. These things are not being given to us, so we're willing to sin to get them outside of God's permission. We listen to the world's wisdom. The world says, be true to yourself. You be you. So now I can. I can just identify with whoever or whatever I want to be, or if I don't like who I am, I can change into what I want to be. It's the world's wisdom. The world says, well, maybe it's just your personalities don't work well together. Maybe you two just don't get along. Well, of course you don't get along. You're both sinners. We're all sinners. We're not going to always get along. I mentioned words that have, whose definitions have been broadened and watered down. The world tells you, if you're in a toxic relationship, get out of that. I don't even know what a toxic relationship is. Surely, if you're in an abusive relationship, of course, you've got to protect yourself. But we'll file anything under this idea of toxic. We just don't like each other. Or I don't like their personality. Or we do everything and everything for the sake of my mental health, whatever that is. We don't need to be true to ourselves because we are by nature, if I'm going to be true to myself, I'm self-righteous, self-centered, self-indulging, self-worshipping. That's my problem is that I am being true to myself. Only through Christ does he change me into that new creation. Only through Christ old things are passed away and all things become new. And even then we're being changed day by day, little by little in this lovely process we call sanctification. And that process pulls against that gravity of the flesh, these desires that I'm wanting that I'm not getting. So we're not to pursue happiness at all costs. We're to pursue holiness at all costs. We're not to seek to be true to ourselves, so says the world. We're seeking to be more like the person of Jesus Christ. And we use these unmet desires to allow him to make us into that. Do not befriend the world. Beloved, do not buy into the world's counsel. Lady Folly is sitting on the gates and she's screaming loudly, listen to me, don't do it. Don't do it. Do not love the world or the things in the world. So we've recognized the battleground that is within us, our flesh. Hopefully you've identified landmines, these desires, even good desires that run amok, good desires gone wild, we might say. We've redefined our enemy. Now we know the enemy is me. We're adultery. We're flirting with the world. We have friendship with the world. And now, are you ready to end this thing? Are you ready to win this war within? Here's the last step, number three. To win the war within, we must receive the terms of surrender. We must receive the terms of surrender. Maybe you didn't think winning a war required surrender. This war does. Most wars don't. I'm not talking about the war against sin. No, we don't surrender to that war. We fight to the death. 
This war that we're against is ultimately a war against the Lord himself. We're battling for desires. We're battling for little gods in our life. To win the war within, we receive the terms of surrender. Why do we do this? Well, let's look at verse 5, and then we'll be done. James says, do you suppose it is no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Why do we need to surrender to the Lord? Because, first of all, God is jealous. God is jealous. That's his name, El Kanah. He is the jealous God. It's the basis of the first and second commandment. No other gods, not even any other images of God, because I am a jealous God. Exodus 34, you shall worship no other God, for the Lord's name is jealous. He is a jealous God. God will not allow room in our relationship for other loves and lovers. When we flirt with the world, he doesn't want that. He's a jealous God. That's Kind of the bad news is that God is jealous. The good news is that God is gracious. Amen? He is gracious. Notice, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. He gives more grace. This is what Paul Tripp calls a theology of jealous grace. A theology of jealous grace. God is jealous for us and he is graciously pursuing us. He won't leave us in our adulterous relationship. He won't leave us in that friendship and flirting with the world. He pursues us even when we forsake him. Read the book of Hosea, a great illustration of God's love for his adulterous children. It gets even better. God is jealous. He graciously pursues us, and his grace is meant to humble us. How do I win this War within humility. I humble myself. I humble myself to God, the good gift giver. That's how I win in this war against God. Do you think you're going to win a war against the Lord? No, that's a battle we'll never win. So we surrender. We humble ourselves. He gives grace to the humble. Look at verse 6. But he opposes the proud. We won't get deep into that, but that idea of opposition, that's a military opposition in that word. That is God with a military force stiff-arming proud people. If you're a proud person, God is stiff-arming you with the military force. How do I avoid that? Humble yourself. Humble yourself. If you're here and you're an unbeliever, you're not a Christian, you don't know the Lord, you don't love the Lord, you're not sure if you should, I have good news. The Bible says that while you were enemies, Christ reconciled us to God through his death. I have good news if you're here and you are not a believer. The God whom you are ignoring is willing to initiate a relationship with you. The God that you're forsaking It's offering forgiveness. The God from whom you're running away will run after you in pursuit. The God under whose wrath you now remain is willing to extend to you his love because he poured out his wrath on his son. If you're in this war against the Lord, you've never humbled yourself before the Lord. Do it now. Call out to him now. Surrender. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will save you. 
If you're a believer and you're in the habit of seeking little g-gods outside of your relationship with the Lord, humble yourself before the Lord. Bow before he breaks you. Don't bow up, bow down before he breaks you. And he gives grace to the humble. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this encouragement, the convicting encouragement of this conflict within. We know that ultimately we are in conflict with you when our desires go against your desires. May we, in humility, submit to your good and perfect will for our lives. May we ask, may we receive it with thanksgiving, and when we don't receive it, may we be thankful. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.